Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Surviving Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader-funded with a sliding scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find a link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. This episode is going to cover some of the UCU teach out strikes that we've taken part in, in particular that which is at LSE and that which is at King's College London. We are joined by Remy, who invited us to come to the LSE UCU teach out, talk about our article on love, care and resistance to sociological podcasting. Remy is a PhD student at LSE, previously in Canada. Yeah, from Canada. From Canada. From Quebec. Quebec, represent. represent. <laughs> Remy, what has it been like coming to the UK, coming to UK higher education? So you've been here as a PhD student for two years now. Well, I think uh, first the the amount of money that's in those, I mean, I'm at LSE, but also I think all like the Russell Group, I think we call them. Uh, the amount of money that uh, is being paid for like uh, VCs and all the management uh, of um, those big universities uh, whilst like students are like you know paying a lot especially foreign students are like paying like a lot <laughs> a lot of lot of money living in precarity no um, no security actually fighting after a PG a job <laughs> actually so it is a big you know, uh, leap of faith, as you said, <laughs> you say in English. Uh, but yeah, I was really surprised by the amount of money. I'm coming from like a really small university in Montreal. Uh, not like, uh, for example, all the locked doors here, like you can't get in inside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just like, nope. where in the middle of central London. It's like, nope, not today. Yeah, and the idea that education is free and you know public and especially higher education accessible to people of marginalized communities, while at the same time increasing the fees and the inaccessibility of those uh, institutions. It is like, yeah, it is scary. Uh, but I see it is the same that is being made in Canada, to be honest. It's the same process of like, um, uh, they try actually in 2012 to um, uh, raise the fees. And there was like a major student protest uh, that like actually stopped the movement, but now they're trying in other way and actually making foreign students from global south paying for like the fees that like local people refuse to 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 pay. So yeah, the whole point of the podcast was to kind of move knowledge to a different space, mm-hmm. and these universities seem to be so resistant to change, mm-hmm. and that's a problem. So they keep putting up prices and make it more exclusive. Yeah, um, like it needs to change, man. Like I think change can be accepted if people are ready to pay. You know, like they want change, but only if people pay for it. <laughs> like if, like I think there's like yesterday we had like a, a teach out on queer resistance and how actually some of like marginalized um, communities' knowledge are being weaponized against mm-hmm. people of color, about, uh, against queer people, and all mm-hmm. that. Yeah, they resist to change. That's true. Yeah, to change, man. <laughs> 
What I think is interesting about that though, T, is think about when we started doing this podcast uh, four and a half years ago now. Like we see this podcast as we say in the article that we're going to be talking about today as part of something that's always already existed beyond the written word. What I mean by that is that we see what our project is part of like previous radio stations that have mm. been kind of like pirate radio stations. We see it as like form of artwork. We see it as kind of exhibitions. We see it as like pamphlets, like anti-racist pamphlets, like things that have always gone beyond, beyond the academic word. But one thing that I think is really interesting, even within the last four and a half to five years as to how the university is changing, but also how capitalism evolves more broadly, is the thing that we do at Surviving Society is now being seen as something of value to the global university institution slash capitalist endeavour. Why is that an issue? Because it then becomes something that can be, becomes commodified. And one of the things that we kind of find hard um, to deal with is what that makes other people do with regards to us as people and how they interact with us. And I think that although we want our knowledge to be produced in a way that's accessible, that's what the podcast is part of. It's part Mm. of that school of thought to try and make things more accessible to wider audiences, but communicate academic scholarship in different ways. We have to recognise how capitalism and how the sector has evolved to commodify these marginalised or weaponise these marginalised voices impacts our capacity to keep things radical. So if you look at the kind of definition, Mm. public scholarship is something that's supposed to bridge the gap between university and the community. Mm. So academia is already trying to move into that space Mm. and they're kind of talking about it in those kind of academic terms again, Mm. which reifies it all over again. Mm. So I guess marginalised people can keep doing marginalised people things, like we'll keep it underground, right? Yeah, but they're now saying, oh, you know your little marginalised stuff? I want some of that. I want to make some money off that. Yeah, exactly. They're making money off of it. That's what was in teach out yesterday about um about the fact yeah it's like taking all those that knowledge and making money out of it that's the only way that the only thing that they don't see it for the kind of political aspect actually they don't want the political yeah, aspect okay. of it okay they, they, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah take it back to kind of sociology it's like Habermas right so that's the life world and the, and the system the system colonizes the life world all, all the time this is the process right and I guess for us, we're very passionate about political education. We're, we're passionate about making academic scholarship accessible. To what extent are we able to do that beyond the academy, both when we have our foot in and out of it? We are very clear that Surviving Society, although speaks to those that are within the academy and speaks quote-unquote for them as well, that it isn't part of the academy. It's outside of it. It's on the periphery. Oh, but, but how yeah. are we able to leg- legitimately say that? Like, I'm employed within the academy. Mm. You're a student within the academy. That's a good point. <laughs> I, just, I, just described, I just described my point as a good I think, point. I think, I think the product that you... I mean, the, 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 the contribution you're making is still accessible to anyone. I mean, I can just, like, go on Spotify and find you and listen to yeah. what, whatever you're share, uh, sharing with the public. I think that's, like, that's also a way to kind of, like, make university outside of university, actually. Uh, but one point I wanted to, to talk, because I think I remember I see one... 
of your tweet saying that how uh, academic are taking actually uh, some of your uh, episodes and like showing like sharing it to with with like in classes and like lectures without actually saying who you are and like actually like you know uh, and that's that's what I mean by like they cannot use that but not really share like the the money they're making for example um, i guess the thing about that is it's really difficult because we always see surviving society as a collective project like even though it's tiso and i that host it and george that executively produces it we see it as something that quote unquote belongs to the people but at the same time like it's very hard when you're treading this you're treading this tightrope of trying not to position yourself as individualized scholars and lean into the quote-unquote academic celebrity whilst also looking for adequate citation and recognition yeah exactly but what is the line like where 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 is the line on that because we're not people that 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 want to have loads of people bigging us up we don't want that but equally like it's a lot of work and we do want it to be valued in a way that is that provides adequate citation and recognition. Isn't it? In the ideal world, I wouldn't even care about citation. Yeah. Because it's knowledge, right? And knowledge yeah. belongs to everyone. Yeah. But you, university and academia, it tends that like it wants to kind of order things and hold stuff. I mean, like, you say that though, T. Like, when we found out that people have like directly used your words and put it into their academic article is hard it's, yeah, it's, it's hard. sad but i said you know, like blue sky thinking like in the yeah. ideal world i wouldn't really care about it. yeah it's, like we have to operate in their kind of world right yeah it's really hard because it's like you don't want to be neoliberal and you don't want to like engage in the metric of ownership and over ownership over of things, words like, of words well, you don't want to do that I think, uh, I mean, it's interesting because um, Katrick, Katrick, Katrick is talking about that in one uh, of her um, chapter on footnotes uh, on the fact that, like, I think how academia may use cit- uh, citation and references is really different from, especially like mainstream academia, is really different from, like, uh, let's say, black studies, like, that will, like, quote, like, uh, Kendrick Lamar mm. and we'll like and it's not like to assert power or authority it's about like honoring you know it's all about recognizing the, 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 the knowledge that you it's a conversation right and I think that's that's what is missing most of the time in like uh, that politics of quotation and speed. that's such a good point um, Remy thank you so much we're now going to go to the teach out so uh, from Surviving Society podcast, which is a podcast uh, that actually question a lot of like things on sociology and invite also a lot of uh, scholars uh, to um, talk about race, class, gender, police bill, nationality bill, and everything. So I invited them today to talk, and uh, yeah, they're gonna give a talk, and after we will like uh, discuss together. Uh, is it okay with you? Hello everyone, it's really great to be here. Solidarity with LSECU. We're going to be talking about an article that we published as Surviving Society in Soundings. The article focuses on our project or our political project of knowledge production as a podcast, as something that is embedded in an always already tradition in academic but anti-racist scholarship that exists beyond the written word. So thinking about things like pirate radio, um, anti-racist leaflets, um, music, art, exhibitions. Um, And we talk about this in terms of sociological podcasting. I'm just going to read 
actually just a little bit from the conclusion of the article. What we try and do at Surviving Society is make academic scholarship that focuses on the local and global politics of race and class accessible, digestible, but inclusive, something which we don't often get within the university space. Um, and we do this by centering love and care, not in an apathetic way, not in a flimsy way, but in a very purposeful way. And if you've engaged with the show or even been a guest on the show, that you'll know that that's how we do things. Again, resistant to that which the cultures which we see and are encouraged to reproduce within the academy. In this article, we argue that sociological podcasting is a radical mode of communicating knowledge about the social world, which contributes to the collective endeavor to produce interventions beyond the written word. We stress that these creative initiatives, sociological podcasting, and projects are part of a vast body of scholarship, work, art and art produced to contest the grand narratives which have come to dominate our understandings of society. We also argue that sociological podcasting is a political endeavour created on the margins of academic scholarship. It is one that should be taken seriously, particularly in its responsiveness to some of the biggest emergencies and issues facing our broad coalitions seeking emancipatory knowledge and practice. Even though we're going to be talking about the radical possibilities of podcasting and that it's existed a, a lot for a long time beyond the written word but in different forms we are also critical of even our own projects and what it does in terms of reproducing and an intensification of the marketization of higher education and also can at times lean into individualized scholarship or notions of the quote-unquote academic celebrity um, so we remain resistant to positioning our project of sociological podcasting as anything other than a collective endeavour. But we're also mindful that as black creatives, podcasters and academics, that our method and praxis can be overexposed to processes of co-option, plagiarism and erasure. This is why some of our more recent discussions about impact and acknowledgement concern the questions of how we can position this knowledge production as authoritative whilst resisting individualized projects of the academic celebrity. The terrain in which we operate makes this an ongoing test for sociological podcasters. But we also stress that embedding our production in a politics of love, care, and solidarity creates an important opportunity to reject the elitist, individualized, and exploitative cultures that have come to dominate academia. Time will tell how our bibliographies will evolve, but it's clear that these creative modes of knowledge production are here to stay. Thank you. Here you go, Remy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really an interesting article. Um, I really enjoy it um, when I was reading it. Um, but yeah, today it's a more a conversation, but maybe it's just to launch the conversation. I had some question uh, regarding that article specifically. In your article, you're, you suggest that podcasting as a medium can help to liberate sociology, university knowledge uh, from uh, its golden cage that is academia. So it was really interesting to see how like this project, because we, we keep hearing the last two weeks that like, another university is possible, right? So I'm really interested to know like how can we base uh, love, hope, resistance, care, 
in this new university? I mean, it's a big question, <laughs> but maybe you have thought about it. So I think it's a really good question, Remy, and we're always mindful of both obviously doing a promotion of scholarship, which goes beyond the written word that, that's creative, whilst also resisting how that gets commodified and becomes part of the structures of the neoliberal terrain that we're trying to resist. What I mean by that is, even though we see our project as something which is embedded in love and hope and possibility, it's an unfinished product and it's one that can still reproduce the things that we're trying to resist within the university. I'll give an example. I got a bit annoyed this morning um, because we get a lot of um, trade publishers and academic publishers and academics themselves that are that need to promote their book and their work and their papers because of how much pressure there is on the academy to, to produce, 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 produce. And sometimes what that, that pressure manifests in a way where people engage with us that is, is, is somewhat extractive. And that isn't, that isn't something that's unique to us as Survivor Society podcast. It's something that, that we do to each other. It's something that is part of, capital, like part of what capitalism does to us. But um, why that frustrated me this morning is because we had had quite a lot recently and we both have got our own personal lives, a lot of pressure as well as trying to produce this, this radical form of knowledge production is because it kind of showed me that people will engage with what we do without engaging with the politics of what we do. And the politics of what we do is very, very resistant to extraction. Like people will come to the show and academics in particular be quite overwhelmed being sat in the studio with us because it's not, it is a critical space of learning together, but it's not a critical space in terms of like being overly critical for the sake of being critical of each other. We invite people on the show, we engage with people because we're, we're fans of your work, we're fans of what you do. And I think that that kind of purposeful love of each other is very, very hard to come by within institutions and within the sector more broadly. So what do we present as a possibility for the future university? I think that we are something that can be part of the future university, but I think that we always have to be critical of all projects like this because they can produce the things that we want to yeah, resist, whether that's marketization, hierarchy, academic celebrity, all these things that are very much not what we're about or why we started to survive in society, but we understand we sometimes have to lead into them in order to get people to engage with our work. Someone want to ask a question on that? Thank you. Could you just say more about what the example this morning that annoyed you about that? What, what, what are the expectations that academics might have of the podcast that might be missing the politics of what you do? What does Limmy Crew stand for again, George? <laughs> Basically, we kind of say that it's like academia creates this like gimme, gimme, gimme culture and learn me, learn me, learn me culture and we call it limmy. So we're like, oh, it's a limmy, like limmy, 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 like give me, give me, learn me, learn me. And I think that sometimes because Tiso and I try to be as accessible, like accessible, kind, loving, that that can produce a culture where people do are a bit kind of like extractive of us. But I think that that's something that happens to all of us within the sector. But because we have a platform where people can promote their work and their scholarship, it kind of manifests in a different way um, that, that 
if we're feeling under pressure can make us feel a little bit, I don't know, maybe taken for granted to an extent. You see me, like, listen, come to the show, the show's about being friends, right? It's a conversation. Yeah. But they come like it's a business. Don't come like that. Come yeah. So, so coming like it's a business and that's obviously how, but we understand why this happens. So the example I give you this morning is we invite people to come on the show all the time. There's just the three of us. It's a weekly podcast. We all, we are... We, I have a full-time job, Tito's a full-time PhD student, George is an audio producer, so we do this outside of um, our mainstream work, although you could say that it very much crosses over. Um, so if we invite someone on the show and we don't get back to them straight away about when to come on the show, sometimes there is a kind of like, oh, they've invited me to come on the show, like, when am, when am I coming? When am I coming? And actually, like, when we invite you on the show, it's a much longer process in getting you on the show, simply because I don't have enough hours in the day. Um, and the publishers as well, like, where, where we've entered this period or this conjuncture where scholarship on race and class definitely transcends the academy now. What I mean by that is we're seeing a lot more work on the sociologies that we're interested in produced by trade publishers, so people that aren't necessarily academics. So there is a there is a new kind of competition and marketization around the work that we do. Like think about looks like why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. That was a very big catalyst for the types of works that we are interested in talking about. But what that's come with is yeah an intensified marketization which where publishers think that we are like the corporation of some sort, we're not, we're just us. <laughs> we understand all of it as well, so even though we're kind of like, I'm being quite critical now because you caught me on a day where I'd had enough of it. I completely understand, like there's a lot of pressure on everyone to produce, to deliver, to promote impact. And now, apparently, universities are, um, valuing podcasting or valuing the type of things uh, that are produced beyond the uh, academic written word because there's money in it. So we have to be mindful of that as well. Sorry, Remy. I want just to jump on that because um, we, we just talked about it before. The fact that, for example, some uh, academics will take product, um, you know, knowledge produced by people of color uh, through podcasting, movie, and other form of art them their own right they're gonna teach it and make it their own add it in their like syllabus without actually recognizing the contribution of people i think that was like um, an important aspect you touch we always say as i said in the when i was reading out the bit from the article that we're a collective project and we're not interested in individualized praise or success but we are also black academics so what does that mean in practice? It means in practice that quite a lot of our work and who we are as people has been studied but also marginalised. So we kind of have, we kind of do have to lean into a citational emphasis on our work. I mean, we've had quite, we had quite a lot of issues with plagiarism. Um, we try not to go on about it too much because we don't want to again like reproduce this neoliberalisation. But equally, it's, it is a bit annoying. But there is a hierarchy of whose knowledge is valued, whose is positioned as authentic, um, and what gets cited. And our way of doing um, sociology is a difficult thing to cite because it's not something which can be measured. It's not something which you can put in the ref, or I mean, it probably will be soon. But I think that that makes it really hard to to know what we should be 
prioritising in terms of how we're impacting the sector, but we do try and say constantly that what we're doing is outside of it. But equally, someone's done it. Someone did a study. I don't know who. It, I don't. I don't know their name. But someone told me about. Basically, someone had found that through our podcast that you increase your citations simply by having an episode on our show, which obviously is amazing. We want to do that for everyone, but equally, it's a bit. It's pressure, and yeah. Um, so um, one as. Uh, important element in your project that I really find it's the place of uh, sound, music, and groove, and all that, um, which is actually not always valued, you know, like in especially in social sciences. Um, um, and I want to, um, my question was regarding to that, like especially in their science, McCurchick, um, is actually, you know, challenging what she called the fetishization of uh, data, right? Like the use of graphs and uh, numbers to translate human experience. Um, so I want to think of how actually could challenge that. Like how can podcasting, for example, could challenge this fetishization of like numbers and data and graph? Obviously, if you have or have not engaged with surviving society, um, we are, we are scholars of and in the tradition of Stuart Hall. Stuart Hall is really important to our project. Stuart Hall is really important to everything we do. So that means that in seeing creativity, artistic expression, culture as something which is, should be taken seriously and as valuable is, is really important to what we do, really important. Um, and I think that leaning into the fact that we are um, the other podcast centers around our black subjectivities and that we do not claim an objective truth or knowledge is something that's really important as well but also like we'll talk about popular culture in the way that Stuart told us to and that, that it should be taken seriously as important for society but important for knowledge production and how we understand the world around us um, do you want to jump if someone maybe have a question or two to ask uh, on that particular subject, on podcasting and renewal of sociology? So entirely unacademic, but do you have fun? We have so much fun. We're so lucky. And, and how does that shape what you do? There's nothing like working with people that you like working with that get you. I think that's really important. I think that's the reason why we've been able to carry on with Survival Society. It's the best thing ever. Like I worked in the city for 12 years. Depressing, depressing. Going to see Chantel and George, it's fun. Speaking about subjects, about life, about what we do. It's the best thing ever. We're very lucky. And it's really important to say, and we talk about this on the show, that one of the reasons why we're able to do Survive in Society is because we are We've, we've managed to keep it going because we're so close, but also we've had the means to keep it going. So I, I am from a working class background, but I'm not working class anymore. I haven't been for a long time. I haven't been for about six years. And I wasn't middle class, and there's no way I'd be able to keep this going. Like, having the space and time to do that is really, import, really important to acknowledge. So I think, yeah, a combination of class security, but also love and friendship is import, really important to, to say why we've been able to keep it going. Uh, I was just wondering, like, uh, why you started the podcast and, like, how it kind of came to fruition? Initially, we started the podcast because we were PhD students and we were depressed, upset with the world, and we were ranting, so that's how it started. Yeah. 
It's important to say that initially it was yeah myself, Tiso and Saskia Papadakis and we used to talk quite a lot in our um, statistics, uh, yeah, social statistics class about politics. I think that a referendum was happening. Um, Grenfell, Grenfell Tower um, had just burned. Um, there was a lot of what seemed like Trump had just got into power. And we, we thought that the sociology or the sociological imagination had things to contribute in ways that maybe hadn't been done on podcasting in the UK before. I think that's really important. But like we say in the article, the Surviving Society isn't an individualised project, it's a collective endeavour, but it is one that exists within a huge breadth of broad coalitions of other creatives. Like It's just another example of that. So I think that we started at the same time as a lot of other, I think, black creatives um, started doing political work or political projects that would be on the written words um, and that contributes to things that have existed for decades and decades yeah hi um well first of all congratulations on starting up podcast out of love and promoting this um like decolonialization of knowledge um my question is like more towards like the politics of citation like i'm in the gender department and we've been like reading a lot of papers done by collectives. And we've also studied a little bit um, like the politics of citations through Claire Hemings' work. Um, and I feel like it's kind of a dilemma um, because there's this part of not commodifying um, knowledge um, and decolonizing it. Um, but also like the erasures are really important and they're kind of like hurtful for the work of others. Um, but I can't seem to find the balance between like recognizing them but not commodifying their work. Um, and like I don't know, maybe one day I'll be in the academia and like these kind of things. Like I don't know how can we balance them out. That's a really good question, and I think it's one which doesn't have one answer. I think it's more of a journey um, that doesn't necessarily have a destination in terms of how we think about citation. Um, but I think that one thing that we try and do at Surviving Society is obviously, yeah, centre love, hope and resistance in our conversations about scholarship which has come before us, scholarship being produced now, scholarship that's historical, that informs what we do. But a key thing that we try to do with our citational practice on the podcast is make it reparative. So what I mean by that is when we're talking about, it reminds me actually of like Gaminda and John's book on um, colonialism and modern social theory. You're thinking about the canon in a way that doesn't necessarily like not see someone like Weber or Durkheim or Marx is important, but sees the other things that were happening at the same time as their knowledge is being produced, but also those that have been marginalised by the academy, what they have said about their work, rather than pri the prioritisation of people that have discussed their work that have been, yeah. What, what are you looking at that for? It's like an answer! To be fair, I can't tell, that's Gaminda. That's Gaminda and John, to be fair. That's not, that's just, that, that's, that's their, that's their, that's their work. But, um, yeah, what can we do to make our citational, citational pra praxis reparative? Who's been marginalised? Whose analysis is not centred within how we think about even some of our big thinkers? Uh, it's kind of related to my question before, but I was just wondering, like, um, I feel like with these kind of things, and as you said, like, you already have so many other things that you have to do to actually... Um, how were you able to, like, 
make it happen. Like, it's easy to like say, let's do a podcast, but like, how did it actually get out there? I'm going to be honest, and it's really not about fetishizing neurodiversity, but I'm high functioning ADHD, I'm dyspraxic, I'm dyslexic. Tisa also has neurodiversity as well. George is exceptionally good at getting shit done. I do think that is a very key component into how we are able to do what we do. I think that neurodiverse people have been marginalised quite a lot from knowledge production in the written word. And I think that podcasting, filmmaking, music does present opportunities for those of us that have not necessarily gone through education, being seen as scholarly or intelligent basically been marginalized by mainstream ways of doing work and knowledge i think it it presents opportunities for us i think we're creatives when you are creative in the way that we are it means that we think about things differently and we have different processes of doing things people always say to us i can't believe that you're able to do what you do with surviving society and i say to them but i can't believe you can like write an article (laughs) Uh, so we can close on this Uh... We are opposite Waterloo Bridge in London, England, and we are on the picket line for King's College London, and we are joined by Surviving Society alumni, Antonia Dawes. Thank you. Yeah. Antonia invited us to come and do a teach out. It's actually the last day of the UCU strike. Yeah. It doesn't feel like an optimistic day. Last week, um, the uh, USS, in agreement with um, UK universities, um, UK, uh, voted to push through the proposed cuts to our pensions. Currently, that's going ahead as of April. Although, it, I mean, it doesn't mean that everything's over. We're actually still on strike over pay and working conditions, the race pay gap, the massive gender pay gap, which is um, higher at King's than I believe at um, other universities in London. The King's College London has got one of the highest or most serious race and gender pay gaps. And those uh, two struggles were the decisions I was not party to, for reasons I was not party to, those two, the struggle over the pensions and the struggle over paying conditions got separated out at one point. We're still here for all those things, really. Uh, we're not stopping, but yeah, we're feeling quite um, downhearted. And we really appreciate you being here because it feels really good to have people coming in and support us. Thank you. Definitely. And Antonia, thank you for giving that context. One of the things that we were talking about yesterday at LSC is what the future university would look like. And we were talking about, in particular, we were talking about what our role is in contributing to that as part of broad coalitions of creatives that try and do academic scholarship outside of the university, but is obviously engaged with in the university as well. I mean, I think Tiso and I were actually quite critical about what we represent within this current conjuncture. What I mean by that is that it's possible that what we do can be simply used as another neoliberal device, which kind of permeates and cements the cultures which already exist within the academy. But that's me being quite critical critical of our project actually like maybe there is more hope there than this no i, I think the future is offload stuff more into community right more community engaged scholarship but what i feel that the problem is it lets universities off the hook yes. it's still pensions will still be a problem they pay in race gaps will be still be a problem so i don't know where you go from there like community-based stuff scholarship like the podcast that's the future but 
it still leaves its hierarchies in place. That's the problem with um, us making our own spaces and making communities that feel kind and supportive is that, you know, that allows, um, you know, racial capitalism to continue to do its work. But, I mean, what do we like, what do we do? You know, I mean, that's like, that's the, the kind of bind of a lot of black feminist scholarship. You know, you create a context for people's basically like survival, but at the same time, you're, you get that gets co-opted in to kind of neoliberalism. And I, so I don't know, but I don't think we stop. I mean, no, I don't think we stop either. And I think we remain critical friends of each other and just keep practicing a praxis of reflexivity and recognizing how we're engaging with the academy. But Importantly, how we're relating and engaging with each other, I think that is really, really important right now because they can't take love away from us without trying to sound apathetic and flimsy and fluffy. I mean that in a very purposeful and political way. Change is coming, right? So for me too, to Black Lives Matter too, like the shift in like racial politics, gender politics. So there is a change, but... What can we do in that change? What can we do in that moment? And what role does the university play? It's coming. We are now heading over to the picket line to do some teaching on love, hope and resistance. Well, it is cold. (laughs) Welcome to protest, kids. We're fighting for your future. Thank you so much for coming out this morning, guys. I know you've been on strike for a couple of weeks now, so, and today is the last day, so, and with everything that's gone on over the past week or so, I know morale, we know morale is is tentative, but we're hopefully going to talk about some things that will make us feel a bit warmer this morning, um, based on some things that we've been talking about together and as a collective. Um, for the past few years. So um, if you don't know um, who Tiso and I and George are, um, we're Surviving Society podcast. Um, we started the podcast about four and a half years ago to discuss the local and global politics of race and class from a sociological perspective. We by no means consider what we do as something unique, but actually part of um, a long tradition of broad coalitions of artists and creatives that produce scholarship, particularly sociological scholarship, beyond the written academic word. One thing that I would say that Tiso and I and George and the guests that we bring on the show centre in what we do is hope, love and resistance. So we're going to talk a little bit about a paper that we recently published in Soundings, which basically talks about the politics of our praxis, but also thinks about what the university could be or can be or is already actually um, amongst pockets of collectives which are which are here as well. Coming out on a cold rainy day, it's big man so um, well done everyone. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually going to read a little bit from the conclusion of this article. Hopefully we can have a little bit of a discussion about what what this kind of creative scholarship can do perhaps contributes to and in some cases enable some of the things that we're protesting today. So it's about being kind of critical friends of what we do, but also recognising how the terrain changes and what that could mean for those of us that are marginalised within the academy. In this article, we argue that sociological podcasting is a radical mode of communicating knowledge about the social world, which contributes to the collective endeavour to produce interventions beyond the written word. We stress that creative initiatives and projects are part of a vast body of scholarship, 
work and art produce to contest the grand narratives that have come to dominate our understandings of society. We argue that although sociological podcasting is a political endeavour created on the margins of academic scholarship, it is one that should be taken seriously, particularly in its responsiveness to some of the biggest emergencies and issues facing our broad coalitions seeking emancipatory knowledge and praxis. However, one of the things that's really important to remember about sociological podcasting or creative scholarship produced beyond the written word is that it does not replace or is replace direct action. It supplements it. As Sivananden says, those, that are, those of us that produce work in this way are the engines of the academy. What you're doing now on the picket line is what creates change. On that note, <laughs> sociological podcasting isn't without its limitations. But we argue that a centering of conversations grounded in inclusiveness certainly offers some degrees of hope for those seeking to find strength by arming themselves through knowledge, including knowledge about resistance, the politics that seek to cause harm to the most vulnerable. So just a final note on what we're talking about here with regards to citational practice. And I think this kind of refers to one of the things that UCU more broadly are arguing for about race and gender pay gaps and particularly workloads and citation work practices, how that gets distributed within the academy. So we remain resistant to positioning our project of sociological podcasting as anything other than a collective endeavor. But we are also mindful that as black creatives, podcasters and academics, our methods and practice can be overexposed to processes of co-option, plagiarism and erasure. This is why some of our more recent discussions about impact and acknowledgement concern the question of how we position this knowledge, knowledge production, as authoritative whilst resisting individualised projects of the academic celebrity. The terrain in which we operate makes this an ongoing test for sociological podcasters, but we also stress that embedding our production in a politics of love, care and solidarity creates an important opportunity to re reject elitist, individualised and exploitative cultures that have come to dominate academia. So we're going to talk a little bit about that now because I think that one of the things that we talk about with Surviving Society is that it's an incomplete and imperfect project. What we mean by that is what we do has capacity and has in some cases been co-opted by how the intensified marketization of higher education and neoliberalism. So what can we do as people that now have the capacity to contribute to things that we're kind of fighting against? Podcasting, like we do, is one of the ways that we can kind of get around that. So it's about a conversation, the dialogues from the fringes, voices that are raised and not really heard. Podcasting, amongst other things, gives us a way to kind of talk about these things, talk about issues that don't become mainstream, that haven't been, not totally co-opted, but that are kind of um, minority issues, right? Marginalised yeah. issues. So um, it's about this kind of dialogical kind of approach, would you think? Yeah, definitely, T. And I think that with the dialogical approach, you're able to be critical friends of each other as well. And one of the things that we find on the podcast, and this is about, I'm going to talk a bit about love here, is that when we have guests come on the show, they, they get quite overwhelmed because our approach is about, is about friendship and is about love. And that, that's why we invite people to come and talk about their work. It's not about being overly critical, and that is something which is constantly reproduced within the academy without care. As researchers, it's about kind of creating that community-based kind of bridge to get your research out there 
and because sometimes as researchers we're quite um, rapacious we're taking stuff from communities and not giving back and it also this the podcast gives a kind of situation where people can bridge the academy to real life like a lot of time we're speaking to our peers and we understand each other but most people don't right definitely and just coming back to the point about what we do and how it has the capacity of being co-opted by the academy like even five years nearly five years ago when we started doing this and again like we're not unique we're part of broad coalitions of people that have been on the margins of academic scholarship that have been producing in this way for a long time whether that's through pirate radio music leaflets community organizing all this stuff but even in the last five years we have seen how what we do as black creatives gets co-opted and now has quote-unquote value but not in a way that is about that is a reparative value in a way that is about using or tokenizing what we do as ticking some edi boxes like and that in itself is so interesting to us because when we started we couldn't get the backing from our institutions goldsmiths and <laughs> backing from anyone but now we we have a backing to an extent but it is one which we have to the, the terrain in which we tread on it as i said about the quote-unquote academic celebrity is tentative but it's quite interesting that you say that so how did we get a backing and it's through the kind of empiricisms of social media because you can count how popular you are so once you develop a platform people can see how popular you are now and that's quite interesting in itself how you're caught up in that mechanism still it is and i mean i was talking about this yesterday on the lse picket line i've been a bit pissed off this week because um because academia has a tendency to create cultures that are extractative and individualized and even those of us amongst our broad coalitions that want quote unquote a progressive future that want anti-racist futures that want to imagine a world for a black feminist perspective even those of us within that group have the capacity to be extractive what i mean by that is we operate within a terrain but also as an outlet that can be used to help people promote their work and we want to do that we want to help scholars do that but because of the pressures of the academy, because of the marketization of the academy, because of the ref, because of impact, it means that people approach us in ways that is at sometimes forgets that we are just three people because they know that we can help them get those things that the academy has said that we need to do as scholars. And sometimes that is hard to it, it's hard to, to navigate that because we understand we have capital, but that capital in itself is quite superficial for us as individuals. One of the big questions that Chantal and I always get asked is, what are you going to do to grow the platform? And that just kind of re-engaging or rehashing like neoliberal logics. Is that some kind of like vertical growth? No, we're looking to grow horizontally. It's not about one beating another. It's about helping each other, a collaborative kind of, a coll a collaborative kind of space, right? It is a collaborative space and Tiso and I and George are not interested in being the only ones doing scholarship in this way. Like, and one of the things, again, talking about why I was pissed off yesterday is because we get a lot of messages, particularly from academic publishers, academics who want to get their work out there. We want to support that always. What that shows me is that you possibly haven't engaged with what our actual political project is. And that is one of dialogical knowledge production, 
of the democratization of knowledge and information about emancipatory anti-racist futures, one that centers love and rejects extraction. So if you are engaging with us in that way, it tells me that you, you're engaging with us as, as, as a market, basically. And that is what we, are, we try to be resistant to, although we know we have to partially engage with it. I think when sometimes when people see us, I don't think they, they, don't, they don't care. I think they just come to um, CV build, right? So I get that. But again, we understand that. And it's structural, and it's not about the individual who's constantly DM me on Twitter saying, please, can I come on the show? I get where that comes from. I completely understand, and it's structural. So this is why like, our message of yesterday was education is not a commodity. How we're able to resist that commodification in an, in, in an intensified marketization of the institution in a way where individuals have such big workloads, where there's a race, race and gender pay gap, where pensions are just going to be non-existent, is really, really hard. But we have to hold on to the things that the institution cannot do. And those things, they can't give us hope, they can't give us love. We do that within our social relations. And we have to hold on to that, even when they're taking and stripping back everything. I think if things continue, um, what you're going to find is people getting more knowledge from more kind of um, fringe places. Yes. So as knowledge becomes, in university, becomes more verified and more kind of elite, you're going to find people going to the dark sides of the web and getting all these kind of information. I just, I think that's such a good point, Tia. And I just want to actually finish on something that the government are doing, which is just absolutely atrocious. And like, I keep thinking about it. So is it going to be possible that university students or prospective university students who haven't got a C grade in maths are not going to be able to get student loans? What's the actual mark? Like, if I had, if, if I, can you believe that? I would not be stood here now. I would not, some of us would not be stood here now. And that is what the future of the academy is going to look like. It's going to be even more elitist than it already is. And that is devastating. Yeah. And so this is where like podcasting and to bridge that gap, yeah. more community based stuff. And this dialogue, it needs to keep going. It needs to keep going. But something that you, something that you said, T, keeping within community is important, but we can't let them off the hook. We can't let them off the hook, definitely. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 